Welcome to The People on K-Chunk, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. The People features the voices and ideas that make up the cultural landscape of Los Angeles, the West Coast, and beyond on K-Chunk, 1630 AM, every third Sunday at 3. Like a broken record, magically repaired. Today we're talking about Hungarian filmmaker Bela Tarr. He's best known for his films Werkmeister Harmonies in 2000 and 1994's Satan Tango. Our guests Janice Lee and Jared Woodland have been working on a collaborative project entitled Slowness, which they recently presented at Beta Level in Chinatown, Los Angeles. It focuses on Tar's use of the long take. In a tar shot, it's you know it's very ugly. It's just it's raining. There's a pig in the mud. It looks like somewhere you really don't want to be. And People... any beauty is just sort of incidental. Yeah, and there is beauty, but it's a very different type of beauty. The way that the long take functions in a Bellatar film is much different than how it functions in a Tarkovsky film, you know, where there's the potential for something something numinous to emerge from from what you're what's in the mise-en-scene, you know, in Stalker, things become kind of magical, for instance, or in, in nostalgia, too, you know. Um, but in Bellatar, there's just mud. In Chinatown, Los Angeles, set your dial to 1630 AM or listen to the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please subscribe, rate, and review the show. The show is hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. There you can find out more about our guests as you listen. Janice Lee and Jared Woodland, welcome to The People. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Hi. Happy to be here. Yeah, thanks for being here. Um, So let's start by talking about the project that you two are working on uh, based on the works of filmmaker Bellatar. Started with a review that I was writing, a review of Laszlo Krasnohorkai's novel, Satan Tango, um, which was published in English for the first time in 2012, uh, New Directions. Um, And I was planning to write a review of the novel for HTML Giant. And Janice and I had watched Satan Tango together a couple years before that and discovered that we we both adored Bellatar's work. And um, <clears throat> and so while I was working on this review of the novel, I said, hey, Janice, maybe you would like to do a conversational sort of review with me. And um, we met about it and we quickly discovered that we first were talking about both the novel and the film at the same time. Um, and secondly, there was there was too much for us to to get to in an, in a, in a review. So um, that's I think that's how it turned into a, a book length project. Mm-hmm. And maybe and maybe one of you or both of you could just for people who aren't familiar with his work, just give us a brief like who he was when he's still alive. Right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, like, <laughs> Quite like when when his like his his historical context. You take that one. His uh, his first three films um, are are kind of kind of considered marginal Bellatar. Um, there before he began um, the the style that he's known for now, which is black and white, um, very long long takes, um, mm-hmm. very very bleak atmosphere, um, <clears throat> and, and and all collaborations with Laszlo oh, Krasnoharkai, right, the novelist. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's these two eras of Bellatar's work. The second era, um, which I guess most people consider more important or more defining, um, 
um, consists of films like Damnation and um, Satan Tango, of course. Um, the Workmeister the Harmonies. The Harmonies, um, also based on a, on a Crescent Horkai novel. And most recently, The Turin Horse, which was 2011. And, and that's the one that Bellatar said was going to be his final film. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so officially he has, requi- he has retired from filmmaking. I don't think a lot of people believe that, but The Turin Horse was his, you know, he announced that it was his last film. And, and it then- seems like... And then tell us about um, the novelist Laszlo. Like, how did uh, how did you guys find the novelist work through Bellatar? We it's it, the the chronology for us was the reverse of what it usually is for for people reading a novel and watching the film that it is an adaptation of, because of the duration between the first edition of the Hungarian Satan Tango and the the English translation. Mm-hmm. So. We came to it by way of Bellatar's film first, as I would guess most people. Right, and then the book was only released into English very recently. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah, and then even concurrently, like to add more context to the project, like you know, we so Jared and I started to work on this review, and the initial part of this review, you know, we kind of broke down every shot of the first DVD of Satan Tango and took notes on each one. So that that's sort of the first part of the review. But concurrently, as we were having this conversation. I was working on my book, Damnation. Exactly, yeah. Which is also inspired by Bellatar. So it's sort of like this, you know, constant obsession. And for that film, I was watching Satan Tango and Damnation and the Workmeister Harmony sort of over and over and over again. And that was the impetus for that book, which is fiction, but still sort of in that mode. Mm-hmm. So get to the project. Tell us more about the, the collaborative project. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we what it what it is right now is that we are sort of you know, generally speaking, we're investigating the long take specifically in Satan Tango um, in Bellatar Satan Tango and also looking at the novel and looking at differences between the long take and how it operates in the film and the language and the sentences of the novel and how they're operating very differently, but also similarly. Um, and some of the themes that, you know, are coming up as we're as we're. Uh, looking at this as sort of, you know, what the different functions, um, you know, how the long take operates visually and aesthetically as compared to the sentences of Cross and the Horkai, which aren't equivalent to the long take, even though they get compared all the time because the long sentence, the long take, mm-hmm. it's a really easy comparison to make. But one thing that we were sort of realizing is that actually Cross and the Horkai sentences operate very, very differently. They're not still and stagnant like the long takes of Bellatar are. Um, there's a lot that happens where you'll start at one place, you know, and the sentence will go on for a page, but through the course of that sentence, an entire journey sort of um, happens. And then maybe, do you want to read? Yeah, there's, sure. Do you want to read the, the sentence? Or do you want me to read the You've sentence? You've got your copy. Okay. Um, yeah, we can read We can read a sentence, because I think it kind of gives a tone, um, and it's really different than, uh, than Bellatar's long takes um give, give us the name of the book real quick so the book is go. satan tango mm-hmm. um so you know the novel was written first um by laszlo krasno harkai um but you know for us as we mentioned you know we read the book way after the film just because it was translated very recently um and then for the film you know the film is based on the novel but they also collaborated so all the films since then you know krasno has actually written the screenplays with bellatar um, so I'm just going to read, this is all one sentence, whether or not it sounds like one sentence. And it's just from the very beginning of the book. Um, 
He gazed sadly at the threatening sky, at the burned-out remnants of a locust-plagued summer, and suddenly saw on the twig of an acacia, as in a vision, the progress of spring, summer, fall, and winter, as if the whole of time were a frivolous interlude in the much greater spaces of eternity, a brilliant conjuring trick to produce something apparently orderly out of chaos, to establish a vantage point from which chance might begin to look like necessity. And he saw himself nailed to the cross of his own cradle and coffin, painfully trying to tear his body away, only eventually to deliver himself utterly naked without identifying mark stripped down to essentials into the care of the people whose duty it was to wash the corpses people obeying an order snapped out in the dry air against the background loud with torturers and flayers of skin where he was obliged to regard the human condition without a trace of pity without a single possibility of any way back to life because by then he would know for certain that all his life he had been playing with cheaters who had marked the cards and who would in the end strip him even of his last means of defense of that hope of someday finding his way back home. So, and so in that sentence, you saw a time for the for the character and for the narrator sort of stop, and then reader time is distended. And as you go, as you enter the character's consciousness, and it's like I think a great example of the 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 one I guess the key similarity between the. The long take and the long sentence, which is that they they both manipulate time, um, and can can get kind of excessive in a way. Um, but the long sentence is, um, it unlike the long take, it arrests time with description. You know, whereas the long the long take is maintain a, a constant correspondence between the action on the screen and and the narrative. Mm-hmm. Like one thing that we talk about is, you know, how loud the novel is actually in comparison to the films. The films, there's, you know, very little dialogue. There's often shots, you know, where it's like a 10 minute long shot or series of shots of silence and you're just watching characters, you know, the camera will stay, you know, at the wall and there'll be a character sitting there and the character will leave and the camera will even stay there. And there's you know almost no sound except for maybe footsteps or, um, you know, the generator running or something like that. So it's, it's a lot more silent. Um, and it's a lot of kind of waiting um, and just watching. Um, so it's a different patience required. But in the novel, because the way that language works, there's this constant narration and there's always something, there's some kind of consciousness always, always at work. So it's a lot louder. It's not actually ever silent. And even if the novel's describing silence, it's done so in this very kind of rich and dense you know, uh, um, amalgam of language. So it's not the same type of silence where it's, you're actually sitting in silence in a box or whatever. Well, and in some in the piece that you guys sent us, um, you you guys kind of like uh, sketched out like you know here's here's this movie that was 146 minutes and it was 33 takes and it just it blows my mind that there's <laughs> I mean I don't know I watch you know movies and television like contemporary American crap and there's 33 takes and like. 30 seconds Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. so can you talk about tell me about that like how do you think that changes just literally cinema you know um yeah i think it's um you know uh so last year you know was kind of a big year two books um on bellatar came out one by roncier um and another by andras balint kovacs i think that's how you pronounce it 
um, who's a film scholar and a close friend of Bellatar. Um, and one of the things he does is it's a very kind of scholarly academic look at Bellatar, and he looks at you know all of these the different themes and and that sort of thing. Um, but one of the things he does look at is the pattern of shots, and that actually as you look at Bellatar's films, there's actually less and less shots, and the shots actually get longer, and it's a very noticeable pattern. Um, you, do you want to actually read the shot number? Because I think the numbers are sort of astounding. Sure, yeah. And Damnation comprises 55 shots in 116 minutes. Workmeister Harmonies is 39 shots in 145 minutes. <laughs> and fi- finally, the Turin Horse is 30 shots in 146 minutes. And that's the one that he, that he was his last cl- film. closed his oeuvre with. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you can imagine, I mean, you know, shots last there there are some shots that are a lot more traditional um like in satan tango there's sort of one series one series of shots that we still haven't been able to wrap our heads around it just seems very um it's different a, for bellatar it's a dialogue scene between a like a government official and two of the main characters and, and it's, it's a actually a shot reverse shot, reverse shot. shot. yeah, yeah uh, constantly over the shoulder um uh, yeah and all of that and it's you know like i mean how many? Sh- I mean, it's it's a lot of shots in a short amount of time, mm-hmm. considering how many shots are in the whole film. Like that's a density of shots, and that was one thing we noticed. But the rest of the film shots are like fifteen minutes long, ten minutes long. Um, you know, so it's a sort of weird phenomenon. And we'll, and I we I promise we'll wheel back around to the actual project. But it might be worth uh, uh, sketching him and his films out a little bit more, like the material that you guys sent us ahead of time to sort of get an idea of what we'd be talking about. Um, I, I read it and there was all these names that I'm very I'm very familiar with. Pasolini, Tarkovsky, uh, Susan Sontag pops up in there saying how much she loves him. And yet I, I don't, I've heard Bellatar's name, but I, I don't think I've seen a film. Like why, and we talked about it a, li- a little off air, but why do you think that is? I think that uh, he, he he makes very uneventful films, and and when people people understand that that's that that's his that's his sort of mode, um, I perhaps that's a turnoff. But um, and I think I think that a lot of the 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 way that the long take functions in a Bellatar film is much different than how it functions in a Tarkovsky film, you know, where there's the potential for something, something numinous to emerge from, from what you're, what's in the mise-en-scene, you know, in Stalker, things become kind of magical, for instance, or in, in Nostalgia too, you know. Um, but in Bellatar, there's just mud. There's... Can you, do you have that quote, the mud The rain quote? and mud? Yeah, the mud please. Quote, yeah. That was amazing, and I, I'll sure. butcher it if I try to remember. Sure. Bellatar says, um, in, in response to, to the comparison to Tarkovsky, which he often, um, I think, has to, has to wrestle with, um, he says, the main difference is Tarkovsky is religious, and I am not. He always had hope. He believed in God. He's much more innocent than me. Rain in his films purifies people. In mine, it just makes mud. So mm-hmm. awesome. <laughs> and I think that's so, actually a really good description. I mean, one of the things when we first started the project, you know, Jared and I were just sitting at cafes just sort of talking about the films, you know, that was sort of all we were doing um, in the beginnings of the project. And one thing that we were trying to wrap our heads around was what is the difference between a Tarkovsky long shot and a Bellatar long shot? And we adore both of these directors, but they do work very differently. You know, and one thing is, um, you know, I think that quote sort of sums it up perfectly. But in in Tarkovsky's films, the long take has a different type of 
poetic um, lens where it's a lot about kind of seeing the magic and beauty in something and it's a lot more obvious and implicit like you know the the camera will focus for a very long time on a glistening river and and the color of the grass and the river will sort of really come out and it's obvious that he wants you to think that it's beautiful um and in a tar shot it's you know it's very ugly it's just it's raining there's a pig in the mud it looks like somewhere you really don't want to be. And People, any beauty is just sort of incidental. Yeah, yeah, and there is beauty, but it's a very different type of beauty. It's, mm-hmm. um, yeah. It's not on a cool space station. Right. No, right. no, it's not. Much more austere. <laughs> um, well, let's, uh, let's, we keep saying the word project. Um, what, what, what are we talking about? Like, what form is this project going to take? It's going to be a book, hopefully. Um, So, you know, what we sent uh, you initially, that text, is uh, one sort of draft chapter, hopefully, of that book. And, you know, we initially wrote it for uh, this talk that we we recently gave. Um, And that's sort of, you know, we're still sort of on the um, kind of beginning stages, and we have kind of pages and pages and pages of notes, and we sort of read just about everything on the Internet that exists about these films. So we have all of that, and so now we're sort of in the gathering and organization phases. Um, And we could read a little bit of the of the talk. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And the the theme of the talk is just slowness. Um, There's a the the actions in Saint Tango are very slow. There's a lot of things that happen very slowly. um, But different types of slowness. Different types of slowness and how that operates. And so that's sort of what we're exploring. Um, Yeah. Can we can we bug you to each read? A little bit of mm-hmm. it? Great. Sure. Frequently in Bellatar films, speaking is not an aspect of character, but an outcome of pace. How slowness speaks and allows the mise-en-scene to speak, as well as what slowness demands, intimates, and confers. This glut of possibilities comes from Tar's principal conceit, the long take. How is this most basic tactic so excessive? Its potential offerings are too much synthesized presentness, too much time in a thing's presence, a level of suspense altogether incommensurate with the events in such obscene suspension. It also constantly entertains paradoxes. Real feelings of hopefulness, humaneness, empathy, and generosity are fastened to intense alienation. It requests that the viewer endure as the film's characters endure, to fail as they fail, and to confess. We, too, have failed to get out. We, too, have not yet found our way home. And yet we anticipate, because certainly there is something inevitable, imminent, and vocal in the mud. In his essay, Observations on the Long Take, Pier Paolo Pasolini argues that if the long take apprehends reality, it is the temporal real, the uncut and non-symbolic present, whose language is action. The long take, he says, the schematic and primordial element of cinema, is in the present tense. So it leaves things incomplete and unsystematized. The more, a more analytical gaze, on the other hand, dismantles and makes complete. According to Pasolini, we can think of life as a long take, a chaos of possibilities, a search for relations among discontinuous meanings. It is death, he says, that makes a montage of our lives. This is our system, our semiotics. This is when we have expression, and until death, we have presentation. Death, says Pasolini, chooses our truly significant moments and places them in sequence, converting our present into a linguistically describable past. Is the tar long take melancholic because it leaves its characters to abjectness and meaninglessness, or because it routes us to a semiotic calamity, our inability to make meaning from our own stare? Or does the long take's patience imply humanity and empathy? 
The long take operates in contrast to the traditional Hollywood cut, or on the more exaggerated end of the spectrum, film scholar Matthias Stork, um, who's actually local in LA, I think, coins the term chaos cinema to describe the rapid editing, close framings by polar lens lengths and promiscuous camera movements that have become normalized in commercial filmmaking. David Borwell previously described this phenomenon as intensified continuity, but Stork goes further, arguing that this is not just an intensification of classical technique, but a perversion and exaggeration of film style that is itself marked by excess and serves to enact an impressionistic sense of action. This kind of editing gives a sense of action, enacts a certain sense of chaos and violence, marked in stark contrast to Tara's long take, in which the slow pace offers a different type of gesture and performs a different kind of enactment of time. The anticipation of a cut, an end, an end to the world as we know it, this is the only kind of anticipation we can suffer, the only kind of waiting that makes sense. All of the spaces embedded behind the narrative actions are opened up by eternity. Borges uh, says eternity whose shredded copy is time, and by the promise of inevitability and doom. But that doom will never come, though it is indeed this impulsive failure that drives us forward, excruciatingly, heavily, slowly, from a present moment into the next. Sergio Shevchek writes, It is as though certain moments sought not to advance or achieve resolution, but rather to simply last, to repeat themselves, to unfold not in a temporal but in a spatial continuum. Hence, the slow movement of the camera when it alternates between the viewpoints of the main character, the spectator, or the narrator, a flexible and above all unconventional notion of time. Time is vantage point, time is delay, time is eternity, time is anticipation, is required so that Tar's patient and obvious obstinate form of observation can act as both the cause and the effect of the duration projected on screen. We live time through life itself, through living and moving forward in, mo in movements, and recover those lost moments only under the guise of eternity. Tar's long take, the agonizing slowness, the anticipation, is also about failure, the failed arrival of anything, of action, of inaction, of an end, so that we come to understand failure not as a set of circumstances that sits in opposition to success, but as a required mode of being, of excess, of waiting, and of the life we have come to know. Um, so that's from the talk. So... Um... I, I keep on thinking while you're talking because I, I we I think both of us have not seen a Bellatar film and so we're gonna go and watch a lot of Bellatar films after I a, this. I saw a terrifying clip of a child and a cat mm, rolling around that really yeah. freaked me out. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's probably one of the most controversial scenes. I mean, that that's a scene that I heard about before I even watched the film. Nice. Yeah, but so I mean, when you're talking about the long take, I kind of in my mind go back to these kind of iconic. Um, long takes from American cinema in the 70s and even earlier like there's Casablanca there's some great ones in the last picture show um, I, Hitchcock can do that really well but my sense is that in any of those kind of the long takes that are in my brain uh, like floating through that cinematic memory there's a lot more going on or it's a lot more dynamic um, and I mean dynamic possibly in the action on screen but also mm -hmm the movement of the camera. Mm -hmm. And so what is like, what is like different in Bellatar's long take than like the, that, that, and I hate to just make you, you know, put Bellatar in terms of American cinema. Just say rope. But yeah. <laughs> yeah. I think in, in Hitchcock's case and, and in a lot of other, other long take directors, um, 
the long take serves a pretty specific purpose in, in Hitchcock. It's it's a very suspenseful device. You know, it promotes suspense. Um, <clears throat> and I think that um, earlier long takes um, that that were that if if a long take is meant to um, <clears throat> to offer a, a unified um, perspective of time and 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 activity or whatever is in the mise en scene, um, I think that Tars long take is a perversion of that because it because it kind of leaves you in a in a state of spectatorly crisis because you're not quite sure why you're watching such excess, excessive um, <clears throat> amounts of really um, often meaningless activity you know and, the, and the, that elevation of detail I think is um, is what what sets tar apart from a lot of long take directors before him mm -hmm. i mean i think of like the the sort of extravagant long take um in orson wells uh, yes that's um, what i was trying to think is it of. a touch of evil yeah yeah, that's a, yeah it's a very um, long and it's a crane yeah shot. And it's a crane yeah. shot and it's going through and you're following a couple and there's a car and mm -hmm. a bomb explodes and there's all this action that goes on the camera itself i mean it's you know it's a famous long take just because it was so technically you know uh impressive yeah um but there it's you know about following the action and and the shot itself is so impressive that sort of enacting a different type of um of 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 uh impression but in tar the camera you know the camera does move but often it doesn't move it's also just about sitting there in a space um and this is one thing we talk about too the the first shot of satan tango is an eight minute long shot of cows um it just you know the camera just sits there and it's there's all this mud on the ground you know the a third of the screen is mud and these farm buildings behind it and then you see this herd of cows kind of slowly emerge into the into the frame and they just travel very slowly at one point one cow mounts another um and this happens for eight minutes and then slowly the camera does start to move past these buildings as the cows are slowly exiting the town um, and it's sort of interesting. I, mean, I showed this shot to my some of my students in a creative writing class uh, for an ekphrastic exercise, and the students felt really uncomfortable. One, because the shot wouldn't end. Two, they really wanted soundtrack. They didn't know why there wasn't any music, and there is a sort of weird, like metallic clinging and bells. And every time that started up, they were hoping that it was going to be the beginning of music, but it mm -hmm. wasn't. Um, and another thing one student remarked on was that normally in a shot like this, you focus on the animals, you focus on the live subject, which would be the cows. But actually, they had been focused on the cows for so long as the camera moves pa past these buildings, the textures of the buildings actually became really exciting. Um, just because it was this different thing and because the camera had started moving. Um, and so it's also just about sort of forcing you to sit. So one thing that we've talked about is like, well, we don't ever sit in real life. We would, no one would ever stop and just watch cows for eight minutes. Like we don't have time and we're way too busy for this to happen. Um, but you know, also at the same time, there's this new, uh, um, I don't know if you have heard of this thing called slow TV that's coming from Norway. No. It's this, uh, you know, I think it's on cable television there, of and, it's, it's, and coming it's coming here. Norway. Of course, it's coming from Norway. You know, it's it's a it's a whole channel, and it's coming to the U.S. Um, and I think it's coming to cable TV, um, and it's just a channel of what they call slow TV, and it's things like a fireplace burning, right? Watching sure. somebody knit, um, watching you know someone fish, but all in long takes, right? The camera doesn't cut, 
Um, but they're an episode, so it's not even like 12 hours long of a fire burning. Like you have to wait for the next episode to watch the next part of the fire burning. What, what will happen? <laughs> right. Oh, that's amazing. Um, well, you guys brought a, um, a, a piece of audio for us, right? Do you want to set that up at all? We can talk about it afterwards too, but... I th- I think we, our plan is just to play the drone from from the cow scene. Mm-hmm. From that, so, from that take yeah, that you yeah, described. Yeah, yeah, from the shot that I just described. And so in it, you'll hear I think some noise from the cows, some of the bells around their necks. But as in addition to that, you'll hear just a kind of an atmospheric drone, mm-hmm. um, which is typical of the of the film, and functions a lot like the long take does. Mm-hmm. And it's the opening shot of the film. Oh, that's great. Great. Well, let's give it a listen. Welcome back to The People in Kaichung, 1630 AM. I'm Ben White. And I'm Matthew Timmons. If you're in Chinatown, Los Angeles, you can listen to The People by setting your dial to 1630 AM or listen to the live stream at kchungradio.org. That's K-C-H-U-N-G radio.org. You can also find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. We're hosted by Insert Blanc Press. Go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page to find out more. Now we're going to return to our conversation with Janice Lee and Jared Wood. 
so tell us about the process of actually writing this. It's a collaborative writing project, and you guys read a little bit of it, and it feels very... It doesn't feel highly collaborative, and I don't know what I mean by that, actually, but... Do you mean it sounds unified, and that's sounds a like thing? a Sounds yeah, like a unified voice, and a, in a good way, and... Uh, so tell us about the process of writing it and, um, you know, achieving that kind of voice. Um, you know, I think mostly we started out just doing a lot of talking. Um, so a lot of talking and a lot of reading. Um, we sort of figured out early on that we, because there isn't that much scholarship on, um, on Bellatar and his films, um, it actually made it possible for us to read almost everything there is on him. So, you know, we sort of have read almost everything on the internet, most of which are reviews, and uh, we talked a little bit during the break, but it's a lot of, uh, you know, yay, I survived Satan Tango in seven hours, and now I can brag about it, but hey, it was actually a waste of my time, and it was really boring, and, you know, that kind of thing. And there's also a lot of, you know, good good reviews um, also. And then these two books, um, Jacques Rancier's uh, Bella Tarda Time After, which I originally got as a gift, from my friend Lamar in French because it came out in French a year before, which I don't read French. So luckily for us, it came out in English very shortly after. And then Andras Valiant Kovacs, um, it's, it's a kind of more scholarly film theory book, The Cinema of Bellatar the Circle Closes. Um, but also reading lots of film essays um, and other books and watching films. And so we assigned ourselves lots of homework, lots of conversations with um, a professor that we both had at CalArts, John Wagner. Um, and how has it been relating to the these couple books that you mentioned that came out recently? I mean, Jacques Rancier is um, he's pretty all right, you know. <laughs> I would I, would, okay, I would, yeah. I would feel a little uh, you know kind of intimidated trying to approach the work. Like what's what's good is that neither book is is really the same thing that we're after. Um, the like Janice was saying, the the Kovacs book is is really a a kind of um it feels like a pretty academic film studies sort of approach and and in fact he he does a lot of great quantitative analysis which is something that we don't want to do but we're really thankful to have it. Right. shot breakdowns and things like that um and 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 typologies that that we wouldn't wouldn't have have thought to uh, incorporate in our own work mm-hmm and then Ron C.A.'s book's a lot more of a poetical, philosophical, very subjective. I mean, the writing's very beautiful. And so at first we were extra intimidated by his book just because it was so, you know, poetic and beautiful. Um, and physically it's a beautiful book, too. It is. It yeah. is. Um, what's this, what is the press? Univocal. Okay. Um, so, you know, both of them have been sort of good resources for us. And then there's this one quote in the Ron C.A. book that I'll read because I've been thinking a lot about it. Um, if I can find it. Um we cannot identify ourselves with their feelings, but we enter into something more essential, into the very duration at the heart of which things penetrate and affect them, the suffering of repetition, the sense of another life, the dignity assumed in order to pursue the dream of this other life and to bear the deception of this dream. Um, so the book is filled with language like that, and so it's sort of helping us to just think about some of the ideas that we've already been thinking about, but on a sort of more emotional, spiritual level. And we um, talked about that early on that we we and I think it was an important step for us to determine exactly how we would we would approach the matters of voice and um and readership, you know, who would this be for and and we decided that we wanted it to be 
um, a lyrical sort of theoretical collection of meditations rather than a rather than a scholarly mm -hmm. feeling um, dissertation ish sort of sort of work mm -hmm. and and one of the challenges that we did have in the beginning is what sort of establishing that vocabulary was was sort of trying to figure out how to talk about these things because we didn't feel like they had been articulated in the way that we wanted them to have been articulated yet so Pasolini's essay observations in the long take is sort of a pinnacle essay for us um, and we keep going back to that essay um, but otherwise, not a lot of language that we were really satisfied with. So even just saying the long take, and we talked about like the Orson Welles long take versus the Tar long take, and the long take itself is a phrase that sort of isn't adequate, um, and figuring all these things out. And then both of us having very, I think, emotional and different uh, relationships with Bellatar. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, how we parse that out and how we talk about our own kind of emotional ways that we're relating with the film, but also sort of talking about the films in a way that other people can understand. Um, because ultimately, we are, you know, we do want to share these ideas with other people in an articulate way. And so how we communicate these feelings that we're having. And so I think the lyrical meditation is a good kind of... Uh it's a description of like the piece that you guys sent us and it sounds like the main um kind of uh, theme that you guys have picked up is slowness and yet mm -hmm. the writing doesn't really enact that that and i don't think that's what you guys are trying to do because again you're trying to communicate ideas but but um but on if slowness is just like that first chapter mm -hmm. what other places are you guys thinking you're gonna go well slowness is kind of a nucleus for a lot of the ideas that we that we've been kind of fixated on lately um, <clears throat> um and and so as we're saying um we're, we're sort of forming um, an amalgam of of themes and, and considerations um and and some of them seem more central than others um so so we're we don't know yet how how we'll be connecting all of them but we do know that things like apocalyptic mood and um so then talk about that because i think that that like slowness as is a really big concept um a little harder to grasp than the apocalyptic mood and what that mm -hmm. might be well, slowness is in in Satan Tango. Slowness is complicated. We found because there's there are so many different types of slowness. There's the 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 slowness of physical activity in some cases. There's the slow movement of the camera. There's the slowness in duration from one event to another. There's the slowness from one cut to another. Um, and <clears throat> I think so far we we've really talked. I think most about slowness as um a, a form of excess and um <clears throat> uh excess in in that it can incite um this this conflict or this crisis that we're talking about earlier um a, a, a viewer crisis and um it's one that <clears throat> um, comes i think because it 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 establishes itself as um, too much, and 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 most people tend to think of something like a long take of a of a provincial 
setting as being really minimal, um, but but in in ways it's it's also very excessive. Right. And, the, yeah. and, and, so, and that. And, oh, go ahead. Please. And I was just going to say, and one practical way to talk about slowness is is um, is to talk about the slowness from event to event, or or the slowness of an activity. And and on screen, you can say that something is slow just by watching um, whether or not you're seeing more than you need to see to to apprehend that part of the narrative. And and in a lot of these cases. Um, when we're talking about excess in, in Satan Tango, we're talking about watching something longer than you have to watch it in order to in it's order like, to I, stay with the narrative. Yeah, it's like I understand what happened in this bit, mm-hmm. but there's five more minutes of this shot. Right. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. And the apocalyptic mood. Sure. Um, well, well, just to go back really quick with the extra five minutes, I think that extra five minutes though is also mm-hmm. sort of where a lot of the aesthetic and ethical contemplation happen it's like that extra five minutes is really excessive but it's also now that you know what's happening there's this extra time that you sort of have to wait and contemplate so there's that sort of the actual time where the sort of inarticulatable thing happens and that's when you start to feel something else um so a really good example of this is there's one of the main characters is a doctor and we talk about him a lot and there's a scene where he's just sitting at his desk and he's sort of uh um, taking notes you know at his window he's spying on everybody and taking notes and pouring himself a drink um and it's the most excruciating thing you've ever seen because it's actually slower than what it would take a normal person to pour a drink um and he's struggling and he's got like his heart condition and he's really old and he's a really large man and you just really want to reach your hand in there and pour the drink for him, you know, and the camera is also really uncomfortably close, so you can almost smell and feel him. And so it's a strange kind of level of uncomfort. Um, And so, you know, even that sort of becomes related to this apocalyptic mood in terms of what it means to be in these uncomfortable spaces and then be accustomed to them. So, you know, there's nothing in the narrative of the story that is apocalyptic. The world's not actually ending. There's not really any religious or spiritual kind of narrative like that. It's right. it's really yeah. just yeah. everything happens in the town and there's these people and, and um, you know, uh, it's a very kind of simple narrative. But, um, you know, Krasno Horkai has this quote where he says... Um, you know, don't don't fear the apocalypse. The day that you were born was the beginning of the apocalypse. Um, and I'm sort of paraphrasing. I forget the exact phrase. Um, and this is something that we talk about too: is that the apocalypse actually isn't an end. It's not. It's not an end. Um, you know, where where things will, will just stop. It's actually the process. The apocalypse is actually what's happening now in terms of reaching some final end that may or may not actually ever come. But it's always and kind of already here so that mood of um inevitability or that kind of sense of failure that Mm -hmm. sense of uncomfort or uncanniness all of that is sort of part of this kind of general sense of uncertainty and failure which sounds really bleak um but also actually a relief in a sort of way because then it's just like well that's all there is um Mm -hmm. so you can just just kind of keep on going through the mud um and it's sort of a relieving way of looking you know sort of sort of uh I don't know, to me it's a sort of actually like hopeful look at life via hopelessness if that mm-hmm. makes any sense for sure <laughs> and this might this might be a good moment uh to move into y'all's relationship with doom metal yes any moment is <laughs> <laughs> yeah i think um another another early um fascination for me in this project was um 
the the relationship between slowness in various art forms and um <clears throat> and I, and so i started to think really um really um kind of confoundedly about about slow music because i grew up playing and listening to very fast metal and um and then in the last probably six or so years i've i've things um my tastes have have moved towards slow metal slow and and droney and um very loud most of the time you know a lot of these doom bands um, play <clears throat> loudly um, because their sound is, is really um, it really depends upon the breakup of the amp you know and and um, <clears throat> and so I started to think in particular about drone metal um, like sun of course and and the excess that's kind of a consequence of slowness you know and and I think I think it's easiest to call um, sounds like that minimal um, but again there's an excess if you and if you've ever seen sun and felt your your body um quiver apart yeah. you know the kind of excess that is that is a, a part of that atmosphere um <clears throat> and so um i started to think about about excess um, I think that was the, the the entry point for me. Excess as um, as a component of minimalism, and then I and then I also asked why um, why doom the mood of doom is defined by slowness, and you know I thought back to like 1970 on the first Black Sabbath album. Why you know. Um, it's it's been since then that slow music has been kind of associated with a mood of doom and you know some of that is lyrical some of it's um in the uh, progressions themselves but um the the category the label doom um has always been one that that um houses slow um music and and so i i have been asking a lot of questions you know about whether eventlessness is a kind of apocalypse a kind of doom and um and why just why slowness is the best expression for for doom this is like uh, tangent but to go back to chaos cinema uh, uh, for for a second um jared and i watched transformers together and one thing when i realized watching michael bay's transformers um high quality you, high quality film can you um, quickly tell why you guys decided to watch Transformers together? Yeah. Um, <laughs> do you we mind? We can edit it out if it's too embarrassing. <laughs> um, so, you know, we, we uh, realized that as we were talking about these films, we're comparing Tard to a lot of other directors like Tarkovsky and other sort of well-known directors, but then also to Hollywood films because the editing style in Hollywood is obviously very different and enacts a very different type of pacing than Tar. Um, and then it sort of came up that, well, Jared hadn't really seen very many Hollywood action movies since... Since I was a kid. Since, since because I was listening to metal. Okay. So. <laughs> so he was too busy, listening to, <laughs> too busy listening to metal, so no Hollywood action films, whereas I've sort of grown up on that and have watched like every shitty action movie like since I was born up until now. Um, so as we were watching Transformers, one thing that I was sort of noticing, um, you know, besides the sort of points that I brought up before, is actually this enactment of time and the value of time. Um, and as you were talking about the slowness and how that, sudden, that, that for some reason signifies doom, I was thinking, well, in Transformers, one thing I wrote down is that there's this strange fantasy that chaos cinema enacts that 
especially in a film like Transformers, like ev- the fantasy is that every moment of life counts, that every moment is valuable. And in every single moment, something significant can happen. And that's sort of, you know, besides the actual plot, a lot of these action films, it's all about like, I mean, not to be like cheesy, but it's like the whole like YOLO, I don't know, like, you know, mode where in every minute something's got to happen. Like someone's got to die, you got to save someone's life. You know, it's you got to yeah, blow always, a building. Seconds are left and you got to defuse the bomb or yeah. whatever. And, it, and it's just like, clever. yeah, and it's yeah. not just the fact it's action packed and fast. It's like actually in every single moment something is happening. But you look at Tar and you look at the sense of doom and it's well, actually there's tons of moments that go by that are completely insignificant. Um, you know, and it's a very different value system of of time, um, and that's just something that I sort of thought of as you were as you were talking about doom and slowness, and I think that's part of it is that it becomes uncomfortable when moments pass that aren't significant, mm-hmm. right? Or there's moment like in Transformers, there's a a need or an attempt to locate every single moment, whereas mm-hmm. like at a, at a sun show or something like that, you you sort of step outside of of time in a way, like mm-hmm. as you feel your innards being disintegrated inside your body (laughs) but like there's a there's a timelessness or a stretching out of Mm -hmm. of the moment instead of trying to locate them right right and when the camera does stop in a movie like transformers you're waiting for something to happen it's a cue actually that something is going to happen like Mm -hmm. an explosion or something when the camera sits and stops in a film like satan tango nothing's going to happen actually potentially um you know something might happen but it's not to the same scale it's not necessarily anything significant mm-hmm. yeah i mean it's like hollywood has trained us that when in those kinds of movies that if you know even just in a moment when someone's just driving down the street and the slow pain of just like driving down the street in the back of my mind i'm always expecting some fucking dump truck to come like you know <laughs> smash that car like <laughs> i don't know you know I mean, even just in any movie now, like, is when I see a shot of someone driving, I'm just expecting some other car to come smashing into it. Mm-hmm. Because that's what Hollywood has taught us. And that, I don't know, I'm thinking about that you guys are talking about uh, minimalism and excess. Mm-hmm. And, and then thinking about, like, and Sun, and I don't know their music that well, but I was, I've, have been particularly struck by the theatricality mm-hmm. of mm-hmm. that slow in action of excess. And mm-hmm. it's very similar to, I mean, this was the problem, of course. I mean, Michael Fried, theat, you know, minimal sculpture and theatricality, that was a thing that, you know, he basically said, like, this is the problem with classical minimalism is it's theatrical. It makes you have to actually relate the, the work of art sitting there by itself just, you know, quietly existing makes you have to relate to the rest of the space you know it, it just it, it's it's a different the, like the theatricality of of um transformers is just simply like something's going to happen next but the theatricality of um you know a minimalist sculpture or something like sun is mm-hmm. that it's almost like melodramatic you have to suddenly you have to uh, instead of sitting you know you're sitting through these moments that like something insignificant is happening i think that's and this may relate to what you were talking about about the ethics of that moment like you want to reach in and pour the drink for the guy but you can't and it's i don't know now it's i'm like just w- rolling watching but a, watching a buto performance right I, yeah is that but i feel like this minimalist excess thing is kind of reverse of the same coin like the slowness uh you know, is a minimalism and an excess kind of mm-hmm. excessive kind of thing. I think there's an excess of material, you know, I mean, in the case of Sun, for example, I mean, they're, they're, they're really the, 
the right example for all this, and I and I I'm sure that I'm going to talk about them too much as this project goes on. But what's <clears throat> perfect about them to to start with is that they're named after an amp company, Sun Amplifiers. So um, to just starting from that um, gives you gives you an idea of of the emphasis on tone, you know, and um, and <clears throat> and volume uh, because they're famously loud clear amps and um <clears throat> and so i think i think that like we were saying earlier with the, the engagement with a long sentence um it's the same with the long take um only in 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 insofar as as your engagement with the material becomes an engagement with with an excess you know mm. and in sound for if we're talking about slow slow metal yeah um, so another thing in terms of Matt brought up minimalism and theatricality and and this kind of melodrama, um, this element of melodrama. And, and for me, part of it is, too, is that the minimalism of Bellatar actually becomes very sentimental and emotional. Um, so even though there's not, you know, the kind of overacting that we're used to or the kind of sentimental dialogue, there's something else about watching these people um, and watching these people so closely that... Um, for me, requires me to empathize with them in a very different way. So empathy becomes a very big thing. Um, and Bellatar sort of talks about this a little bit. Um, I can't remember exactly what he says, but he does talk about human dignity, that part of this project, um, a lot of people will say that his films seem very political, and he doesn't like the word political um, necessarily, but he does talk about wanting mm -hmm. to talk about humans and human dignity. Um, and so for me, it's also a very emotional and ethical project, just in terms of how I relate to these characters and then how it ends up being something where I have to relate to myself. And that's been like an issue with it that you guys have had to wrestle with a little bit with the writing of the project? I think so, just because it's something that's very hard to articulate because mm -hmm. it becomes, you know, for me, the closest, um, and I've said this, uh, I've sort of, this, this is, you know, the closest way that I can describe it is that to me, it feels like I'm giving confession in a confessional box um, by myself. Because but, the amount of time you've got. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, you're left there thinking about questions of the universe and of life and, and, and all of these ethical questions. Um, and that's something that's very hard to articulate to someone else unless they've experienced something similarly. Mm -hmm. And I think that these possibilities are what make the long take so rich. Well, thank you guys for bringing such a rich discussion to the people. So thank you, Janice Lee and Jared Woodland, for being on The People. Yeah, thanks. Thank us. you. We've thank enjoyed you for it. having us. You've been listening to The People on KTRUNK, 1630 AM. Our theme music is Ock Fifth by Lewis Keller, and you can find us on iTunes by searching for The People Radio. Please take the time to subscribe, rate, and review the show. Or go to insertblancpress.net and click on The People at the top of the page. And we're going to go out with a song by the band Sun. It's from their 2005 album Black One, and the track is called Candle Goat. <laughs> <laughs>